Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Dr. Gaurav Jain, who is an assistant professor of marketing at the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. His research examines how individuals make judgments, estimates, and decisions in the absence of complete information. Welcome, Gaurav. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Gil. It's my pleasure. Sure. So I want to start with one of your uh, recent papers, uh, Fluency and Perceptions of Decision-Making. Mm-hmm. Um, in which you say research consistently finds that fluent stimuli in marketing communications are better, better mm-hmm. liked and more trusted mm-hmm. than more difficult to process stimuli. So what do you mean by fluent stimuli? So basically fluency uh, stands for the ease of processing any information that you become exposed to. Mm-hmm. So suppose I just told you this particular uh, de- definition of fluency, that is information for you. If I had said, uh, said this information in extremely scientific terms, it would be less fluent for you. In a marketing context, suppose you are reading a particular advertisement, uh, print advertisement for a printer in a magazine. Mm-hmm. If that advertisement, if the information is very difficult for you to process, it will be less fluent. If okay. you, and there are many, many ways in which fluency uh, and its opposite, disfluency, can be manipulated by marketeers. The okay. first one is linguistic fluency. Mm-hmm. It, it is about the language. So if a message uses a lot of complex language, it becomes linguistically disfluent. If the message uses simple language that people can understand, it becomes linguistically fluent. Mm-hmm. The second is conceptual Uh, disfluency and fluency. As the name suggests, it depends on the kind of concepts that is being trying to explain, uh, try to explain. If the concept is a very difficult to understand uh, concept, it is a disfluent concept. But Mm -hmm. most important of all, I should say most important from the marketer's point of view is perceptual fluency. Marketeers can play with the font or the background color and foreground contrast 
and many other aspects, perceptual aspects of, of the message to make it easy to process by the customers or difficult to process by the customers. Mm -hmm. So that is known as perceptual fluency. Ease of processing information is fluency. Lack of that ease is disfluency. Okay, okay. So it makes uh, makes intuitive sense. Um, you say fluent um, designs are better, uh, better from a marketing perspective. Mm -hmm. And uh, I guess it may have some connection to, there's a general understanding that if the brain takes more power, uh, it tends to not like that. So <laughs> generally, uh, people like to process information quickly and more easily. Mm -hmm. And um, and so this is sort of in the same direction, right? So more fluent. Um, I, uh, I completely yeah. agree with you on that, Gil. So basically, we are cognitive misers. By that, yeah. I mean that human beings don't like to, you know, uh, spend a lot of cognition on things which can be done with ease. So we don't like to spend a lot of mental power, in your words, if it is not required. So yes, for decades, uh, fluency has been shown to increase customers' attitudes. So high fluency is associated with higher customer attitudes. Yeah. And the reasoning behind that is when there is an ease of processing information, people feel a physical effect in their body. That yeah. effect or that good feeling of processing information really easily is misattributed to the target object. It can be the product, it can be the service, it can be the brand, it can be a person. In this paper, however, in this paper, I have actually shown something which can be seen as the opposite of fluency, that is disfluency. So I were trying to choose a laptop from an electronic store, you have been given three options or you have zeroed down on three options. And the thing is the information about all those three options is given to you in a difficult to read font. Hmm. So they are actually perceptually disfluent. Okay. Now, because yeah. the information is disfluent, you will take a lot of time to process that information. Hmm. And because of that, naturally, you will take a lot of time in coming to a decision. Hmm. Now, later on, after a time delay, you will actually like your decision, the result of your decision much more because you will actually forget the source of the, uh, you will actually forget why you had taken so long to make the decision. You will only remember that you had expended a great deal of effort in making uh, that decision. And as human beings, there's a lot of research which shows uh, you know, we value things on which we expend uh, a more effort. And uh, there are many papers, I can name uh, the, the classic uh, paper of effort justification by Festinger. <clears throat> so that was the finding of this study, that in context of choice, if we make things disfluent, People over time start liking the result of decision, their decision much more because they forget uh, that that they had taken time due to the disfluency. Okay, so so um, so if you have a choice between two things, mm -hmm. one of them is fluent, one of them is disfluent, 
the most likely choice is going to be the fluent one because of just the cognitive processing needed to to make, make that decision absolutely uh, but what you're saying also is that uh, in a situation where both of them are disfluent mm-hmm. um it is it is likely that the decision maker is going to take more time mm-hmm. uh but the decision maker ultimately will be satisfied mm-hmm. with the decision yeah because somehow the effort spent was justified uh to to actually go through that process absolutely so they will actually value their decision more because they will think oh that might be a very well thought out decision i had taken a lot of a lot of time on that decision so okay. this has a lot of managerial implications for retailers now if you go to an electronics store and uh, they are less concerned about whether you pick up a samsung uh, galaxy book their new line of laptops or whether you pick up hp spectre or whether you pick up dell uh, inspiron but they are more concerned that a customer who has walked in the store should at least pick up one computer mm. and at the same time you know that electronics store tend to lose a lot of money when customers actually return the product after 8 to 10 days they have to sell it as an open box they have to sell the product as an open box and they tend to lose a lot of money on that so this particular strategy of making things a bit disfluent can actually decrease uh, returns because it will definitely increase post purchase uh, satisfaction mm-hmm. okay okay and so it, so it has lot of implications uh, on the marketing side mm-hmm. um it may also have some implications as you say uh in in sort of uh in a business context mm-hmm. right yeah. uh, what you're saying more generally is that uh people feel um they have done a good job mm-hmm. if they have done uh, if they spend a lot of effort mm-hmm. in a in a situation where there are choices and all choices are sort of equally complicated so to speak yes. um so so the the alternative there would be in a situation where all choices are equally simple mm-hmm. uh it will be sort of a random choice and in your uh, um in your computer laptop as uh, example mm-hmm. you would you would um argue that if if everything is well written and really simple to understand they make a choice very quickly they take one go home but the likelihood of them returning is lot higher yes. in that in that yes. case okay okay and so so what's the what's the prescription for sure well i am the one who who just you know work uh, on research paper they are just tools and uh, yeah. no tool can be directly used without understanding the context there is no tool in the world so i will be very very apprehensive to give a general prescription but yes i am often approached by companies to you know for certain solutions in certain contexts so yeah. based on the situation uh based on the context i can give the prescription so i'm just i'm just talking <laughs> okay. that question yeah yeah i mean there there are some sort of uh game theory theoretic aspects here too uh if um you know if the if the different computer manufacturers mm-hmm. have a choice as to how they display their products yeah. um you know how they do that is uh, is really related to how others absolutely and absolutely yeah. and just to make that uh, game theory problem more complicated every computer manufacturer yeah. has a separate has uh, different kinds of 
uh, laptop lines uh, like uh, Dell has Inspiron, Dell has XPS, uh, Dell has Vostro. So, you know, uh, how they actually control the fluency of the messages for each of these lines can be a challenge for them yeah. as well. Right, right, right. Um, so I guess, you know, going back to the simpler uh, idea, uh, a fluency customer actually um, actually likes that. So in the Dell case, when they have multiple lines and if they have a need to push one line, uh, either because of higher levels of supply or dip, you know, better profit margins or whatever, um, do they actually... Uh, you know, sort of do this uh, on one line and not the others? Basically, I'm not sure whether whether uh, companies are in the current times are using yeah. this fluency yeah. uh, as a strategy. Okay. I'm pretty sure they are using fluency as a strategy for sure. But in your question, yeah. you're asking me whether they make one line fluent and the others disfluent. I'm right. not right. sure any companies using disfluency as a tool as of now. Uh, right. So okay. again, the answer to that question will be something that I'm not aware of. Yeah, okay, okay. Um, let, let's jump into another paper. Yeah. Um, uh, numerosity and allocation behavior, mm -hmm. insights using a dictator game. Yeah. Um, you say you investigate how the numerosity bias influences individuals' allocation of resources between themselves and others using the backdrop of the traditional dictator game. What exactly is a dictator game? The so dictator game is an uh, economic game. Uh, I will just explain the game to you. So suppose yeah. I am a player, the experimenter gives me $10 and my task is to give some amount of that uh, money to you. You are another yeah. player. Now I control the allocations as player one. So I have $10, I can keep some of it and I can give you some of it. And there's absolutely nothing that player two, which in this case is you, can do about it. So, you know, in a completely normative sense, I should not give you anything and keep those $10 for myself. And in a completely normative uh, uh, scenario, you should be happy if you get any uh, non-zero amount. Anything above zero, you should be happy. But even then, uh, it has been shown that, you know, in a dictator game, player one gives some money to player two, about 20 to 30%. So in this paper, what we had done, we, have, we had used this context of dictator game and we have seen the concept of numerosity. Now, what is numerosity? Numerosity simply means that we think that entities which are described by bigger numbers are bigger in magnitudes, which means if I say that I have one year to turn in the paper versus I have 365 days to turn in the paper, I will feel that I have a, I have a lot of time when you tell me I have 365 days to turn in the paper. Because 365 happens to be a bigger number. Now, again, numerosity bias is something that has been shown before as well by multiple researchers in the area. We have shown numerosity effect in the context of allocation. And what better game to use in the context of allocation than dictator game? So in this paper, what we showed was 
that if you give me ten dollars, if if the experimenter gives player one ten dollars, hmm. I and asks me to allocate some money to player two, yes, I will be giving like about three dollars to player two, which is in line with what past research has shown. But yeah. instead of ten dollars, yeah. if you tell me that I have been given thousand cents to allocate, <clears throat> yeah, thousand cents to allocate. I will be giving less yeah. money to the other player. So, yeah, that's yeah. So, so 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 first of all, the, the dictator game. Uh, so the thirty percent allocation the dictator makes is sort of uh, fairness. Absolutely. Type. Uh, reasoning, Absolutely. right? So that is what the expectation is. And what you're arguing is that when you have, uh, when you have thousand cents, um, it's a thousand cents. Yeah, when you have thousand cents, uh, they give uh, they give less, uh, presumably because if they give three hundred cents, it it looks big. Absolutely. On the other hand, though, uh, won't they also think that the remaining seven thousand is also seven hundred? So, <laughs> remaining seven hundred, three thousand. So okay. again, Gil, I can't agree more with you. So what we had done in this paper, we had a separate. Obviously, every every paper has multiple studies. So yeah. in, in this paper, yeah. another study, uh, in one of the other studies, what we had done, we had asked participants to focus on their own share and not on the other person's share. So instead of asking them how much money you will give player B, we ask them how much money will you keep for yourself. Mm-hmm. And again, in this con, in this case, going with your intuition, people actually kept less money for themselves in the sense mm-hmm. condition and ended up ended up right. allocating more money to the other person in the sense condition. So because again, right. uh, like you rightly mentioned, seven hundred cents seemed very big. So they said, yeah, 700 is pretty big. Let me just reduce that. Uh, So the focus, uh, it all depended. So focus actually acted as a moderator. If the focus is on player two, Mm -hmm. sense condition resulted in less money for player two. If the focus is on player one, it's himself or herself. uh, Sense condition resulted in more money for player two. Right, right. So... Yeah, I also wondered in both of these papers uh, on this one more than mm-hmm. the other, the previous yeah. one. Um, did you look at any sort of controls like education or scientific, um, you know, profession or whatever? Uh, did you see any difference between, uh, you know, people with PhDs and so on, and just uh, just just uh, thinking yeah. aloud uh, whether they don't have. Uh, this type so of you are talking about numeracy now. Numeracy, uh, although it's yeah, it's it sounds similar to numerosity, but it's a very different concept. Numeracy means how comfortable we are with concepts of mathematics. So by your question, I understand whether you know how comfortable people are with mathematics. Will this effect go away? So yeah. in this paper, yeah. we have not looked at any controls as such uh, based on uh, numeracy. But yes, uh, if I can cite other papers, then numeracy often plays uh, a role in in framing biases. My third paper, which I had sent you, was on framing, attribute framing. And there is some work by other researchers which shows that numeracy can many times uh, influence the effects that I have shown. 
So people who are extremely uh, high on numeracy, they will probably less, they will be less, uh, you know, I should say, we will see this effect less with that population, which is high on numeracy, because immediately uh, it will be very difficult for, for us, for the experimenters to make them focus on only one player. They will be focusing on both players simultaneously. Right, right. Um, uh, Gaurav, I think the I, I figured out the issue, what the issue might be. It might be that, uh, do you have the volume on your computer too loud? I think it might be a feedback issue. That, Can yeah, you reduce, reduce the volume now? Reduce it? Okay, okay. So, so, so you you um, mentioned the attribute framing paper. So let's get into that. So that is entitled "Revisiting Attribute Framing: The Impact of Number Roundness on Framing." And so you're looking at um, you say we compare the impact of round and non-round numbers using a communication message on consumers' evaluations and judgments towards associated target entity. You want to talk a bit about? Um, what, that paper? So attribute framing was actually shown by uh, two of my co-authors, Arvind Levin and Gary Gate, even before I was born. It was in early 1980s. They had shown, uh, they had demonstrated attribute framing. Now, first, let me explain what is attribute framing before I get to the findings of my paper. So suppose, let's say you are inviting a friend of yours for dinner and you want to make beef lasagna for your friend and you go to the market to look for beef okay now yeah. many of the beef options in the supermarket may be labeled as 80% lean beef on the same at the same time some beef can be labeled as 20% fat beef now depending on what you are looking now, 80% lean beef is same as 20% fat beef. They are objectively same, isn't it? So similarly, 80% uh, students cheating in an exam is same as 20% students not cheating in the exam. 80% success rate is same as 20% failure rate. So these are attribute frames. Coming back to the example, if you are looking for a lean option, a healthier option, you will you are more likely to pick up the beef which is labeled as 80% lean because you will think that 80% lean beef is healthier than 20% fat beef just because lean as an attribute is closely related to health whereas fat has been shown to be related to tasty so if you are looking to uh, looking for a tastier uh, beef, you are more likely to pick the 20% fat beef. So this was attribute framing. Uh, now, attribute in, in attribute framing has been shown many, many times the last three of three to four decades. And it is used by marketeers all the time. Whether you want to lose weight or whether you want to get into a great shape, these are the attributes that uh, a gym would use in its communications. What I have done in this paper, I realized that in all the research papers in academia and as well as in the corporate world, people generally use round numbers with attribute framing. Mm -hmm. 
they use uh, going with our example so they will use 80% lean or 20% fat 90% lean or 10% fat only round numbers mm -hmm. So I started focusing on numbers because these numbers are an important part of an attribute frame. Yes, attribute is very important. Lean versus fat is extremely important, but even the number is a very useful part of these attribute frames. So my research question was, will it make a difference if instead of using 80% and 20%, I use specific numbers such as 81.56%, and 18.44% or any other specific numbers. Will that make a difference? Will it increase attribute framing? Will it decrease attribute framing? And this paper uh, got published in a very good journal because we found some surprising and some very, very interesting uh, findings. What we found is that in a between subject experiment, uh, we found that people generally think that 81.56% lean beef is less lean than 80% lean beef, which is definitely wrong, isn't it? So using specific numbers was actually decreasing the attitudes of consumers towards the target product in the positive frames as well as in the negative frames. So is it, um, I don't know if you can, uh, you can answer this, but is it because uh, it's more complex? To Basically, the is process account, the, the underlying mechanism for this, uh, we had like multiple studies in this paper as well. And most of these studies yeah. were to explain the underlying mechanism. And this paper uh, became, got published in a very good journal just because we were able to explain the underlying mechanism. So phenomenon was interesting. Going to the underlying mechanism, like you mentioned, it, it follows in multiple steps. So first of all, specific numbers in, uh, are more difficult to, process, to be processed. More important than that, specific numbers in such contexts catch our attention, catch customers. So when I look at a particular uh, message which says, you know, there's an 80% success rate of this particular strategy, 80% doesn't even catch my attention. But if you say 81.56% success rate, that number will definitely catch my attention. The moment something catches my attention, so we use eye tracking and other strategy, strategies to show that specific number is catching more attention. But then yeah. what happens when something catches my attention? I have to make sense of it, isn't it? Now if something has caught my attention, mm -hmm. I actually have to make sense of it. How can I make sense of a random number, 81.56% or any other number? I immediately, I immediately compare it with the ideal number. Now, what is the ideal, what is the ideal percentage of a lean beef? It's 100% lean beef, isn't it? So I will compare 81.56% lean with 100% lean. And we showed in multiple studies this comparison step. And nice. The real beef will always fall short of the uh, the ideal beef, and that is why this beef gets penalized. So, using specific numbers in the positive frame, in the lean frame, is bad. Now, let's see what happens on the negative on the other side. 
Suppose instead of using 20% fat beef, I say uh, this beef is 18.44% 80, fat beef. Yeah. I will compare it directly with 0% fat beef. Yeah. Yeah, but, but uh, I wondered, I, I'm just thinking about myself. If I see that my instinctual reaction would be to round that up to yes. 20. Um, maybe, maybe both happen. Yes, so basically there is a lot of uh, research on in numerical cognition which shows that human beings, when they don't have enough uh, you know, motivation, uh, they actually round numbers up. Yeah, but many times uh, it does not happen. That's why, you know, odd pricing is so successful. If people start rounding up, mm. you know, prices like $5.99 will be quoted as $6 and nobody <laughs> okay. will be using odd pricing. But we see that odd pricing are used everywhere. So, mm. yes, people round, but more often than not, they don't. And that's why, you know, uh, right. odd pricing is so prevalent in marketing. So in our paper, we showed, uh, we saw that people are trying hard to make sense of these numbers. They are paying attention. When we did eye tracking yeah. study, they were looking at these numbers for a longer duration. Uh, they had a big, uh, larger, uh, they, had, they had a higher memory of these numbers, which means they coded them uh, well. And they could compare, mm. and they were actually comparing these numbers with ideal numbers. And we also tested that using our some of our studies. Uh, you know, people did not even see the word 100% lean they could recognize 100% lean at a very fast speed, which means they thought about 100% lean recently. So we did, I mean, these were all the tools that we had used. Uh, the, uh, the studies were a bit complex uh, for me to explain them in such a short duration of time. Uh, but the point was that people were actually trying to compare these attributes, these uh, non-round attributes with the ideal attributes, and that's why they were penalizing the objects, the target objects, the target brands. Mm -hmm. So if the prescription, one would think that the prescription from our side is not, don't use, uh, not to use non-round numbers at all, but this prescription is not right. In many cases, you want attitude towards the target product to go lower. <clears throat> that you are an organization uh, which wants people to reduce smoking. So instead of saying that, you know, about 8% uh, children will be suffering from asthma due to passive smoking, <clears throat> you should actually give <clears throat> the actual, the real numbers. The 7.82% uh, children will suffer from asthma due to passive smoking the attitude towards smoking, passive smoking, will go down in this case. So that's because, again, they're comparing 7.82 yes. with zero? Yeah. That is right. Okay. And a round number, it's almost like a sort of a lazy uh, view. The brain is not catching it. It's just sort of mm -hmm. filing it away and yeah. not really thinking about it. Uh, when you add complexity to it, you are then forced to analyze that number, so to speak. And then when you analyze it, you have you you have a, <laughs> uh, a, a number that you're thinking yeah, about. Yeah, because you, you don't have anything, any other context. 
if I give you some other context, probably you will use that information. But in the absence of any information, you'll uh, move towards the information that is most that is uh, most available to you. So, um, so we talked about uh, kind of three different things uh, in terms of marketing communications uh, and both in terms of pricing, in terms of uh, people making decisions. If you mm-hmm. sort of combine all of this in, in conclusion, uh, Gaurav, you know, how, how would you, what, what would be your view as to, you know, if somebody is thinking about pricing and communicating a new product, let's say it's a completely new product, what would be the features, uh, both of that communication as well as the pricing? Well, I would strongly say that, you know, first of all, try, if I see all these findings uh, by a single lens, I would say that numbers have a language of their yeah. own. So numbers are not only used to communicate quantitative properties, but they have certain associations. Some numbers can be kind, some numbers can be cruel, some numbers can be sharp, some numbers can be smooth, some numbers can be feminine, some numbers can be masculine. And all these associations are studied in the field of numerical cognition. And numerical cognition studies many other uh, aspects of numbers as well, apart from these associations. So I would say that, you know, coming to your central question, when, uh, when somebody is coming up with a new product, they should be using numbers very, very carefully. So if they're deciding on the price, yes, they should do yeah. their pricing research. I'm a marketing research professor. I spend like six classes of my semester on pricing research. How should uh, you know a company decide on the pricing? But at the end, when you have come down to the number, think about that number as well. How to, how to actually show your pricing? Is it a good idea to show that you... Uh, you will get 12 pens for $6. Or should you go and say that you will get one dozen pens for $6? Or I would go a step further and I will ask the company to think that should you say that uh, I'm, we are giving you 12 pens for $6? Or should you say that we are giving you, you know, uh, the offer is $6 for, for 12 pens? What should be the order? And there is research and marketing. There is research and marketing which has looked at these kind of effects. There is research in numerical cognition which looks at these kind of effects. So I would say do, uh, uh, I would say that use the numbers very, very carefully because they have their own associations. And numbers are not only included while communicating pricing. Even, Even irrelevant sounding numbers such as SKU number, serial number of a product, order number these are the numbers that can impact consumers judgment consumers decision making in one of my other papers which is a part of which was a part of my dissertation i looked at the presence of numerical landmarks now we all know about physical landmarks uh if i if you uh ever come to you know uh albany troy where my university is located in the capital region of new york and ask me the way to RPI. I'll tell you RPI is the oldest university in engineering. You can ask anyone. And you would say, no, I don't want to ask anyone. You tell me the way to RPI. And I would tell you, okay, let me, uh, the way I will explain you the 
way to RPI will be something like this. Yeah, take route seven, you will see a clock tower. Take a right from that, right after that clock tower, you will come across a Sunoco gas station. Take a left from that Sunoco gas station, you will come across an old uh, red brick church and so on. Basically, I will be using these landmarks. Yes. And these landmarks are very, very important, important in spatial cognition. And they have certain properties. Physical landmarks can be recalled very easily. <clears throat> they catch attention. <clears throat> Information associated with these physical landmarks is coded in our brain at greater depth. So I will know the I will know that the old church is a red brick church. Ask me about any other building on that uh, road, I will not know the color of that building. And most importantly, these physical landmarks can act as decision nodes. They can nudge you to make a decision. So in this paper of mine, I wondered whether numerical cognition will have certain features similar to spatial cognition. Because you know it has been shown that we, uh, numerical cognition is associated with spatial cognition in many ways. In fact, they we use the same cortical metrics, we use the same parts of the brains to process space and to process numbers. Does that mean that we will have numerical landmarks as well, just like we have spatial landmarks? Does that mean that these spatial landmarks will also have, that these numerical landmarks will also have similar properties? Are there any numbers which can be coded in our brain with greater details? Are there numbers which catch our attention? And more importantly, can there be any numbers which can nudge me to make a decision? So this is what I've shown in that particular paper. It is a part of my dissertation. And coming back to your question, even irrelevant looking numbers can make me make or uh, can can actually nudge me to make a decision because some numbers can actually act like landmarks so what's the basis for that um i can think of a sort of an evolutionary basis for it um so so what do you think is the basis for so basically uh we did not look at the reasoning why numerical landmarks are associated with spatial landmarks, just because there has been a lot of research yeah. uh, which has looked at the reasoning. And as you mentioned, a lot of it gives evolutionary-based uh, underlying mechanism. So when we were evolving, you know, mm. the first thing we had to take care of was space and time. We had to understand the concept of space and time. How far should I actually throw the arrow so that it hits the deer? Or how much time do mm. I have left before the sun sets, uh, before I actually get to my cave back. So while we were, so we started so, having our our yeah. you know the cortical uh, hardware in our mind started evolving for mm. uh, space and time. And then later on, we start we had to make sense of other things such as societies, such as relationships, such as numbers. We came across different modalities, different mm -hmm. concepts. And human beings all, uh, you know, there is something called cortical recycling, which means we always try to use the existing hardware to understand new concepts. 
so when these new concepts started coming up and we start, we had to understand numbers we had to understand other things we started using the same hardware that was already there with us so that's why numeric yeah, right, go ahead right. sorry and so no so the the heuristics that uh, that as you say has some sort of uh, importance uh, numerical importance in our mind uh, could have some correlations to sort of the scale of early humans uh, like you say you know how far did they travel how far did they see how far did they attack an animal how long did they walk so all of those may have may have created some heuristics that we are now sort of repackaging in the modern context and so so there is yeah. a whole area uh, evolutionary psychology is a completely different area which looks at extremely good and interesting uh process mechanisms grounded in evolutionary explanations yeah excellent yeah yeah this this has been great garo uh sure. thanks so much for spending time with me thank and, you thanks uh, good a lot. luck thanks with a lot all this you. research and thanks a lot for having me thank you bye yeah sure